Hello and welcome to episode 17 of Making Media Now, the filmmaker's collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. In this episode, I chat with Tori Starr of Boston's public television station, GBH. As the director of digital and social content innovation at GBH, Tori works with the station's many local and national production units to inform and develop content strategies on social and emerging platforms. Since 2018, she has led GBH's Emerging Platforms Initiative to pilot original programming and instill audience-first content development practices throughout the station. Not long ago, Tori walked GBH president and CEO Jonathan Abbott through one of the Emerging Platform's latest initiatives, a futuristic space station built from scratch that doubled as an immersive interactive live streaming escape game on the video platform Twitch. Here's how it went. Hey, Tori. Hi, John. How are you? Now, I know this isn't your office. Where are we? So we're in uh, the escape lab. When the players came in, they had to escape a space station that was orbiting Mars, and it was a live interactive escape game on Twitch. This is part of our Emerging Platforms initiative, and it's all about reaching new audiences on the platforms where they are. Twitch has an incredibly large and dynamic and engaged audience. 15 million users daily are on the platform, and about 55% of them are under the age of 35. So we were so excited to be bringing science education content to that platform that not only has the audience, but has that interactivity uh, and that engagement element sort of baked into its DNA. Science and science education and media matter so much to WGBH. Uh, trying all of these new things always teaches us something new. What did we learn with Escape Lab? So the whole point of this pilot was thinking about um, how we are communicating with, with uh, these younger audiences and what their expectations are. And one of the biggest things that we learned was their expectation for being part of the narrative. So not only were we producing an escape room series that was interesting and fun and visual to watch and educational, but we layered on top these Twitch interactions. So the viewers were actually, they had a stake in helping the players escape. So um, if you'll follow us into the lab, uh, we'll show you some of the experiments. Tori has been at WGBH since 2009 in roles spanning from production, social media, and digital video. In 2019, she completed the Media Transformation Challenge Fellowship at Harvard's Kennedy School that taught a performance-driven approach to digital change in media organizations. Tori's expertise and insight around the topic of how best to produce and distribute content for a digital audience was informative and truly engaging. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, we encourage you to please subscribe and leave a review. And now on to my conversation with Tori Starr. Hello, Tori Starr. Hello, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to Making Media Now. As I mentioned in the introduction, Tori is the Director of Digital and Social Content Innovation at GBH. Until recently, a lot of people probably knew GBH as WGBH, which is the (laughs) the flagship PBS station, not just in New England, 
probably east of the Mississippi. That might be that might be debatable among some people in the New York area, but uh, I hold fast to that opinion. Thanks. So yeah, we really threw a curveball at people with that dropping the W, <laughs> but yeah. that's how everyone says it anyway. So considering uh, that everybody said that anyway, exactly. GBH exactly. is there is there still a trivia game around what GBH actually stands for? Um, well, it used to stand for Great Blue Hill. Um, I think it still does. <laughs> Other people said, God bless Harvard back when they were on the Western <laughs> Ave campus because Harvard owns all that, all that real estate. But you're right. Great Blue Hill. Uh, now we advance to the speed round. So director <laughs> of digital and social content innovation. Tell me what that means. It's a great question. Um, up until last year, um, my title was director of social media. Um, and I had been in that role for, um, I think since about 2015. So about five years or so, uh, you know, increasingly, um, social media, um, had a multimedia feel, especially in video. Um, so I was doing a lot in, in video work as well, um, and expanding beyond sort of traditional social platforms. So that sort of expansive, <laughs> expansive concept sort of now encompasses, uh, video work as well. Is the idea that that there's a lot of content being created specifically and exclusively for digital for you know online platforms as opposed to reversioning of existing broadcast programs? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, my sort of driving force in my career has always been thinking about storytelling in uh, new ways in multiple platforms. Um, and so, uh, you know, I've really always been a proponent of how do we use social platforms and new platforms that are emerging um, to extend our storytelling and to, te- and to tell our stories uh, in new ways. So, um, you know, this is really just an extension of, of how we are, you know, we're very good at telling broadcast stories on the radio and television, um, but really thinking about, you know, meeting the moment. Um, how are we extending that to the platforms where people are consuming? And are you taking into consideration uh, different audiences for each of the platforms? And tell me a little bit about how those differ and, and how you approach them. Yeah, absolutely. So I oversee um, a very small team called the Emerging Platforms Team. um, And that team's uh, specific job is to focus on um, audiences under 35. Um, and, uh, we really identified that spot, um, because we, you know, public media as a whole does a really great job at reaching kids with the PBS kids content, um, does a really great job at reaching adults, um, with documentary content and, and, and television broadcast. Um, but one thing that we're seeing is that, you know, increasingly we, we know we can't rely on that audience coming back to, to television, um, you know, traditional linear television. So what can we be doing now to reach that sort of in-between audience that is establishing a relationship with them and public media so that, you know, when they are at older adults, we still have them. Um, so we're really, this team is really thinking about, you know, where are people consuming content as they're, you know, in their 20s, 30s, 40s, um, and how do we, you know, introduce our brands to them um, in a way that's it's natural to them? Um, you know, whether that's to convert them to watch a linear broadcast or something on your smart TV, um, or maybe something on YouTube. Um, thinking about that, um, that's sort of what that team is focused on. And what does your data tell you about, uh, you know, where's the gateway uh, right now? And, or, or does that break down along demographics too? 
Um, yeah, I mean, obviously with, um, in the last year, we've seen this incredible acceleration, um, of change and how people are consuming content. Um, and you know, the, the, the writing's been on the wall for a long time in terms of this shift from linear to on demand. Um, and so, you know, GBH is really thinking like very strategically across the board about like, how do we, how do we change to, to meet that moment. And, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty subtle shift. It's that people are accessing content when they want it, um, on the platforms that they want it by selecting their title, as opposed to tuning in or setting their timer for, you know, their calendar for 9 PM or 10 PM to tune into something. So it's a little bit of a, a mental shift too, but there's, there's also a lot of innovation in storytelling and, and formats, you know, we've seen even just looking at Netflix or some of the streaming platforms, the sort the serialized storytelling, um, and sort of that binge watching mentality. Um, so there's, you know, GBH across the board is thinking, you know, how do we meet that moment? How do we match the audience expectation for that? Mm-hmm. And you and I, before we started recording, you and I were having a bit of a chat around how um, educational media uh, has a little bit higher hill to climb in terms of kind of meeting the moment, not just from the standpoint of how can we maximize utilization of a particular technology, but there's the underpinnings of the content itself has a mandate. Yeah. And, and, you know, and sometimes, well, I wonder, I'll put this in the form of a question, you know, what's the sort of the litmus test around what, what, what is the best innovative digital means of uh, uh, presenting this content while still preserving either the educational value of it or almost the uh, PBS niche of it? I just yeah. made up a word. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, we think about that all the time and, um, I personally, um, go back to, um, the 1961 speech from Newton Minow, uh, that sort of kicked off public, the conversation around public media in the first place. And, um, this was the FCC chairman and he, uh, spoke in front of Congress and, and made this speech about how television was a vast wasteland sure. and how there, how there needed to be educational and trusted media, um, amid, amid this vast wasteland where, you know, we could trust our, our kids watching and we could trust, you know, it's, it's ironic or it's, it's pertinent to look back in today's age of misinformation to think about that. But I always think about that because the environment, the media environment in 1961 was television and radio. Um, today we have this explosion of platforms and television and radio are still very important, but they are just part of that multi-platform mix. And I really think that there is a new and a renewed calling um, because, you know, if you go on Snapchat or YouTube or any clubhouse, any, any media platform right now, and there is a lot of crap out there. Um, And I really think that public media's job and like continued uh, mission is to be on those spaces to be providing the trusted content. So it's just an extension of, you know, what we've been doing for 50 plus years. Yeah, it feels that it feels like public television, public media, uh, educational media creators are burdened, so to speak, with the additional uh, sort of litmus test of saying just because we can do something, should we do something? And how do you guys go about sort of vetting? Uh, I don't know, maybe 18 months ago, two years ago, was somebody in your meeting saying, what about TikTok? Are we going to do something with TikTok? And, you know, now you just mentioned Clubhouse, which... Yep. 
you know, I've still been trying to figure out why anybody would want more talk coming at them. Uh, you know, on that kind of audio, form, it's, the new, it's the new thing. Who would have known audio? Audio. Exactly. <laughs> Just How cutting up on edge. Us. Conversation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think people are missing conference calls. Um, yeah, that they could just sneakily listen in on. Um, no, it's a, it's a great thing. I I call it, um, shiny object syndrome. And I think about that all the time. And, um, that's actually a, a huge part of my job is to, um, help GBH cut through the noise and identify, um, what's a trend versus what's trending. Um, so, um, you know, for example, this, uh, the small team that's under me, the emerging platforms team, that's an, um, attempt to help, um, GBH navigate that challenge. Um, so this team is really meant to be the, the team that's out there and trying things on new platforms to test it in order to help our more established brands, um, that have higher stakes when they jump in on something, um, make a smarter decision. So for example, that team was out there in, you know, starting in 2019 on TikTok and testing it out and testing different concepts. We did a um, pilot around, you know, what is public media on TikTok? Um, we did a, we did a, um, science series on TikTok. Um, we tested a lot of different, um, we did election coverage on TikTok. So we tested a lot of things. We knew what it was like to produce for TikTok. And then we were able to have conversations now with Nova and American Experience and all of our brands about, you know, here's what it's like to produce on TikTok. Here's the audience that you could potentially reach. Is this the right fit for your brand? And is it the, you know, do you have the capacity? Is this a smart strategic move? Talk about about worlds colliding, American Experience on TikTok. (laughs) Might I mean, it, take, it takes 90 seconds to do a pan on one of those stills. <laughs> His, history on TikTok is a, is a fun little rabbit hole. Um, I, I, I say there. that as the uh, former website producer for American <laughs> Experience. So I can. I started I can at American it. Experience. So uh, they are, uh, they hold a very fond place in my heart and I love working with them whenever I do. Yeah, I would, I would echo that sentiment. Absolutely. Uh, so how much is your job a reflection of uh, your own media consumption and preferences for media uh, platforms? That's a great question. Um, I actually try to divorce the two. Um, You know, I use my own my own preferences or my own media diet as an indicator, but the same as I would for any research. So I really try to rely heavily on data versus, you know, what platforms that I like to be on. Um, so I, you know, I, I read, um, I, I try to dedicate part of my morning every morning to be just keeping up um, to date with eMarketer and business intelligence and all of the trends, especially, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of, um, potential bias in, you know, how a single individual consumes media. Um, but, you know, I think keeping a, a, an eye and really a sharp understanding in how different, um, different demographics consume media, because it's vastly different. I think ever, more so than ever before, how, you know, high, a high schooler is getting their news and information is so different than someone in their mid twenties and someone in their mid thirties. Um, and even, you know, people that have different access to different, you know, forms of connectivity. Um, I think that all that has to be taken into account. And so I see it as a a big part of my job is to know those larger numbers to help people understand, is this platform a good fit for the audience that you're trying to reach? So the the whole uh, realm of social media 
And and that's obviously quite pertinent to what you do. I think the public impression of those two terms or that one term, two words, one term uh, has taken it has had an interesting evolution, particularly over the past four or five years um, where not that long ago, social media almost felt like part of the solution. We were going to be more united and we're going to be able to share and I was going to be able to understand you. You were going to be able to understand me. Hasn't really turned out that way thus far. Uh, How do you maintain sort of the optimism and and visionary quality of what social media still can be while, you know, being aware of what the perception is and also what the sort of slippery slope toward siloed information can be? It's a great question. And I've been sort of professionally in social media through the whole evolution of that perception. You know, I started, I started working specifically in social uh, when I was at American Experience. Um, I ran their Twitter account in like 2011, uh, like before Facebook was open to non-college students. And all the way through, um, I was a social media producer in um, the newsroom at The World uh, for a radio program. Um, and just thinking, you know, in a more strategic role here at GBH now, um, you know, that's 2011 to, two, to 2021. Um, that 10 years has been pretty interesting to see just sort of the explosion and the excitement around social as a demo- democratizing um, space versus um, a toxic space the way it's seen now. And I think, you know, to answer your question that um, I think as, as the months tick by and there is more and more negativity around these spaces being um, potential misinformation vehicles, potential places that are toxic for certain demographics or um, different people, um, I just become more and more convinced um, of the need for trusted content on it um, and trusted people, um, educators, journalists, um, you know, the whole gamut that filmmakers, but, you know, public media in general really takes pride in. And so, um, you know, I think that there is a tendency to run from these spaces, which um, I, you know, my personal opinion is that it just creates a vacuum for more um, vile um, and, and more toxicity. So um, I just, I really think that there is a space for journalism and education um, in these spaces. And the more we can do to be present and to, um, you know, maybe in different ways, convince people um, that this is content that is meant to be, deserves to be trusted and valued, um, you know, the more we can try to break through and and help make that toxicity a little bit less, or at least create safe safe spaces on it. Uh, you mentioned earlier that y- you had been interested in storytelling pretty much from, from, from the get-go. If you reach back into the recesses of your memory, uh, where did <laughs> that come from? Were you a reader? Yeah, I, Were you a big media consumer as a kid? Well, I have a very, there's a very specific moment in my career where it kind of everything went into very sharp focus for me. Um, I wanted to be starting a college. I took a course in college, um, where we went to Sundance and I, it completely blew my mind and I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker, like pretty much from that day on. So after I graduated, I did, I did an internship in American experience in college. Um, so I had sort of, they planted the seed very early GBH did in my mind. And I, I worked very briefly in New York city for, um, a filmmaking, uh, for two filmmakers doing, um, documentary film, which was a really incredible experience. Um, and then, um, 
in 2009, I believe, 2010, um, I moved back to Boston to work at GBH. And I've been at GBH ever since. But my first job was as a PA at American Experience. And um, as I mentioned, I was uh, I was doing a lot of website content. I was fact-checking timelines. And I was doing a lot of, of content for the site. Um, but I also said, you know, like, as the resident young person on staff, I said, why don't I live tweet the episodes? And at that point, um, you know, Twitter and social media was really used as a second screen experience, as a complementary to the storytelling on the broadcast. And my aha moment came um, with a production called, uh, with a film called Freedom Riders, um, which is um, a Stanley Nelson film and is... Um, I'm very happy to see it having a second life this year and really, you know, still very much part of the conversation about um, our history. Um, And part of that was uh, this engagement campaign where we uh, had 40 college students um, get on a bus and ride from Washington, D.C. down to New Orleans to retrace the original um, student freedom ride. Did uh, Michael Rossi work on that? Yeah, he did. Yeah, I thought so. My, he did. He's a great guy. In fact, um, he's going to be on the podcast uh, in the coming weeks. So. Oh, good. Another GBH or two. He's, he's yeah. still working on some GBH projects. I'll he let is. him plug that. Yeah. He, he's, he's a man who doesn't like to be idle. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. So there was, there was a bunch of us from, um, from Amex, uh, from American experience on that ride. Um, but my job was to, um, keep up with the students blogging. They all had sort of little video diaries. Um, and I also said, well, why don't I give this a shot to sort of live tweet this experience? And so I was, I was using Twitter as sort of a, um, a way to document these students journey through this 10 days. And the last day we uh, arrived in New Orleans and there was a screening and I had multiple people come up to me and say how powerful it was for them to follow the student's journey throughout mm-hmm. those 10 days. Mm-hmm. And that was the moment where I said, well, you know, Twitter wasn't just, I wasn't just using this to promote the broadcast and get people right. to show up to watch the film. I was telling a story and I had a narrative arc over these 10 days. And that was the moment where I said, well, social can be, yes, great. Like social media can be a marketing platform. Social media can be used as a second screen, but this is a story. Like this is a narrative form in itself. So yeah, that's a really interesting distinction because it takes it from, it's really a parallel experience then. Uh, and, and it's really augmenting, you know, the broadcast where I would bet you have run into many scenarios where, you know, people think of the digital experience first and say, Oh yeah, there's a TV show too. As opposed to, oh, have you been to this TV show's website? Right, exactly. And I think that's one of the exciting challenges with with these new mediums is that, you know, you have to constantly be thinking about, am I giving them an experience that's an experience in itself? Um, Am I telling a story? Um, as opposed to, you know, making them go somewhere else for the rest of that experience. And, but you also want it to be a pathway to discover more. So the, the secret sauce and the way to do it the best is you're telling a story and you have a, a really, um, you know, great experience that you're giving someone, whether they're learning something, whether they're being inspired, whether they're being inspired to act, to do something. Um, but you're also saying at the end, you know, here are other ways to, you know, here are ways to dive in deeper, whether that's watching the film, going to the website, you know, whatever the other products are. Um, so if you can do both of those at once, um, that's huge success, but it's, it's, it's difficult. Yeah, I think there's also a really great opportunity there too, to um, give the, the viewer more autonomy around the way they interact with content where they feel like it's not, it's not, it's not so top down. 
You, definitely, you, definitely. And we've seen that, like that's been a huge focus for um, the emerging platforms team um, because we've really identified that as a, not only a trend, but an expectation um, that a lot of audiences on different platforms have. Um, that's been, you know, uh, going from a broadcast one-to-many model a, a very personal one-to-one model. Um, you find on social platforms that people really expect if they reply, you to answer them. Mm-hmm. Um, if they engage, uh, you know, we do a lot of live streaming um, on Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitter. Um, if people are engaging with that, they're expecting the host to, to answer back. Um, and that's a new expectation and, and um, definitely been a learning curve for our, our talent, our hosts, uh, our journalists, uh, but so powerful. And in terms of, um, you know, uh, uh, opening up a whole new world for finding new stories and finding new sources and actually, you know, immediate feedback um, and immediate, you know, you don't need to do as many audience panels. You have a whole world of audience panels uh, if you just listen. How are the, the, how is this uh, new methodology impacting the way uh, content producers are coming to uh, GBH and PBS. If, are these things that they've already thought of or are, are they coming, as you said before, the one to many? Are they coming with the one and you're working with them to help create the many? I think it depends. Um, and it's definitely been an evolution. Like, um, you know, I think that this was new concept four or five years ago. And I think something that, you know, they don't teach this in journalism school. They don't teach this in film school. Um, but, uh, in the, the, but people have come a long, long ways in understanding that in the last, um, when it, since I've been in this role in the, in the past five years. Um, and I find now that a lot of people are open-minded to thinking about format. Um, like I know you, you had Michelle on, um, on an earlier podcast and she was talking about making the format fit the story. I'm finding more and more people are coming in with that ethos to say, I have this story. What's the best, what's the best way to tell this story? Right. Um, I mean, I think frontline is, is a great example at GBH, um, of, of really, um, you know, they've probably been doing that the longest of thinking about the story first and then having a conversation of, is this a documentary film? Is this a podcast? Is this an interactive, you know, what's the best way for us to tell this story, um, in a way that's not necessarily like, okay, it's a given, we're going to be doing a, you know, 56 minute broadcast and then everything else is sort of collateral or, um, sort of rolling up into it. It's more of a holistic conversation at the beginning. As you look at what, uh, your counterparts in the commercial, uh, or, um, or corporate media are doing along these lines, do you have any thoughts on what they're getting right and maybe what they're, what they're getting wrong? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, frankly, it's, it's, um, really, (laughs) it's really lovely because they're always the first movers and we learn a lot from, uh, the commercial media's, um, successes and also failures. Um, so So it was very quibby to you. You're you're going (laughs) to break out in a cold sweat. (laughs) Well, we were very excited to watch Quibi and see what happened. Um, I mean, I think that that story is as much a failure of, um, uh, running a business as it is with a format, um, in terms of over promising on something and trying to create a market. I think that their the whole theory of Quibi and sorry, if this is a tangent, I, I love talking about this, the whole theory. Around, <laughs> it's around, a podcast. We're, we're, we're basically a tangent. <laughs> um, the, the theory around Quibi was that they will create a new market for, you know, this on the go in between short form video viewing. And that market 
they were right. The market is there, but everyone was spending it on TikTok this year or in 2020 and, and not on Quibi. And, um, you know, of course there were fewer in between moments. There were not a lot of people waiting for the train, which is, was their sort of classic, very true, <laughs> their classic example. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think we were really interested to see what would happen with Quibi. Um, we definitely weren't pitching ideas to Quibi. We were seeing what happened. Um, and I think that's, you know, partly, um, being a little bit smart strategically, but also, you know, we have to be a little bit, uh, we have to be smarter with our bets and we can't take as many risks, um, as commercial media can. So, you know, I think being really smart about where we, where we are and where we actually, um, put our foot out, um, is as much of a business decision in the end as it is, um, an editorial or, or creative decision. Yeah. Another, I think, interesting distinction, too, is the relationship that people make with the uh, technology versus with the content. And, you know, I think that that an argument now, of course, the big caveat here being during a time of covid. But I think an argument could be made as a counterpoint to the to the TikTok and Quibi assessment would be, why are people binging 10, 12, 16 episode series? And they're, they're creating such strong relationships with the content, with the story. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if those stories were doled out to them in tiny little bites, would that still hold? And I, I wonder sometimes whether the appeal to say something like TikTok isn't because, Oh, I love it because it's short, but I, I almost feel like TikTok is still in the place where we love it because that can happen because it's literally because it just can be done. Mm -hmm. And the allure of that will probably wear off, you know, over time. But it, it often feels to me like um, uh, corporate media or commercial media mistakes the two. They, they, they you know, the classic uh, confusing the medium with the message. Yeah, that's so interesting. I, I completely agree with that. Um, and yeah, it's sometimes it's hard to make a distinction between the two. Um, but you really have to, uh, uh, there's a lot of excitement and a lot of potential in seeing new platforms, especially if you think about the technology and some of the advances that you can do with, um, you know, we've, we've done a lot on Twitch as well. And, you know, some of the things that you can do with interactivity on Twitch gets you really excited, but, um, you know, it's my job to be looking at that with a 10,000 foot view and say, okay, you know, what are, what are we chasing? And, uh, you know, is this part of a larger trend that's going to be with us in three to five years versus, you know, something that's going to make a good product or a good story now. As we look to the uh, coming months and through the rest of uh, 2021, what should we be looking forward to coming out of the emerging platforms department at GBH? Um, who, what can I, what can I talk about? Uh, well, we keep everything highly classified. No, I'm, <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Visit um, often. <laughs> yeah. So we just went through an exercise where we identified, um, you know, I was talking about trends and as opposed to, um, you know, specifically, um, putting our, hitching our wagon to platforms. Um, it is called the emerging platforms initiative, but, um, it should be called the emerging formats initiative, honestly. Um, so, you know, we, every year sit down and say, okay, what are the larger trends that we're seeing? And so, um, you know, I think that, moving back a couple of years when this initiative started, the best, the most classic example of that was stories. Um, so Snapchat came along in, you know, 2014, 2015, there was a lot of excitement around Snapchat and everyone was talking about Snapchat. Um, but you know, I tried to say to temper that and say, okay, people aren't talking about the business. They're talking about that 
that format, that storytelling of the tap through storytelling that is able to give us, you know, so many narrative options and, uh, new ways to tell stories. Um, and that's that obviously that format has, was classically adopted by Instagram, but you're now seeing it on every single platform, even on Google, you know, you've got that stories format. So that's a good example of um, identifying a format um, that's, you know, has long-term, you know, if we get good at telling stories with a capital S, then uh, we'll, you know, no matter if Snapchat syncs as a company, we'll be okay. Um, and we'll, you know, th- that'll pay off in, in, you know, within a three to five year window. Um, so, you know, now today we're thinking about um, some, some major formats. So one of those is interactive live streaming. Um, so thinking about, you know, this, this whole trend of live streaming, um, whether it's Instagram live, Facebook live, YouTube live, Twitch, um, that sort of live ongoing, um, experience, um, but really building in that expectation for the audience to interact live. And that might be as simple as a Q and a, um, you know, what you're seeing with virtual events is the most classic example. Um, but all the way to, um, an audience actually controlling a narrative or having a, having a stake in a narrative. Um, so interactive live streaming is one platform or one format. Um, we're also thinking about stories as well. Um, and we're calling, we're trying to identify like exactly what the, what the it is behind TikTok. We're calling them micro narratives for now, but it's basically <laughs> very short, very, very short right. bursts of storytelling that don't necessarily, you can't rely on that existing or coexisting with other, um, with other videos. Like you really have to tell that story within that time period. So if this was just TikTok, then we'd be a little bit more hesitant, but we're of course seeing the sort of TikTok format being copied by Instagram's reels, um, by YouTube, they're rolling out something new. So we think that this is really, there's, there's something to it. So those are sort of three main formats that the team is really focused on. That's great. Well, I'll be looking forward to to learning and seeing and hearing more about all of that. Uh, thanks again for your time. This has been a really, really interesting conversation. And, um, you know, every time I hear about really cool and uh, sort of... Uh, educationally valuable and important content that's being created uh, to sort of, you know, not just keep pace with, but almost redefine how to best use these new communications technologies. I find it uh, uh, very enlightening and um, it's refreshing. Uh, So you're a great ambassador for that. Absolutely. Like, you know, the, everything changes every, every couple of months, it seems like, and, uh, and things, you know, the disruption is, is happening at a faster pace and it's not going to, to stop. And so I think that every filmmaker, every storyteller, every educator really needs to understand, you know, have that skill set to understand like how to see the forest through the trees and, um, really keep their eye on the ball. Who is my audience? Who am I trying to reach? And what's the best way to tell that story? So that's what keeps me going every day. Um, I mean, I've been at GBH for going on 12 years now and I, I love every minute. So it's been a, it's been a great place to sort of flex that muscle. Well, Tori Starr, it has been a pleasure to chat with you. And if folks want to learn more about what's coming out of the emerging platforms uh, department at GBH, where should they be going? Um, we have a website on the um, GBH site. So I would just direct them to GBH.org or of course, follow GBH on social media. We are at GBH on all platforms. All right. Well, thanks again. You have a great day and uh, I hope to chat again. Thanks for having me. 